0: Welcome to the Imago Day Community Podcast. Hi, Imago Day. Uh, AJ Swoboda here. I'm very thankful uh, to be with you for the next uh, few uh, weeks. I'm going to be with you uh, this week and uh, two other uh, uh, opportunities moving forward uh, as well. And I want to talk uh, for just a little bit about uh, a topic, both I think rooted in scripture, but also deeply important and practical to. Um, uh, following Christ uh, in in our contemporary uh, situation. I, I was told at one point years ago that Martin Luther had been asked by one of his students, the father of the Protestant Reformation, uh, what was God doing on the eighth day? And Luther uh, was reported to have asked, reported to have responded with the phrase that <clears throat> that God was creating hell for people who asked really silly questions. Um, it may seem like what we're gonna talk about today almost feels like a silly question, but I think it's one Uh, that we deeply need to address as Christians in the 21st century, followers of Christ uh, in our contemporary um, situation. And that is, I wanna talk about paying attention. I wanna talk about paying attention. I'm gonna talk for the next few moments about the sin, uh, the problem, the tyranny of distraction, of the inability to see, pay attention to that which is in front of us and that which God is calling to us uh, towards. And then I wanna talk a little bit in our next session about the actual art of paying attention, the biblical theme, biblical concept of tending, uh, of giving attention to uh, the things that God is calling us to attend to. And then the third and final conversation we're gonna have is gonna be around practicing disciplines that are rooted in the ancient Christian tradition, disciplines of paying attention uh, to the things that God uh, has placed uh, placed before us. I've, I've found myself drawn to a story in the Gospel of Mark Mark chapter ten, which is the uh, that, that story of a, what we call the rich young ruler. Uh, Jesus, uh, his itinerant ministry, is traveling, he's uh, going up and down the uh, the geography uh, where, where he had been uh, been born. This is his homeland, uh, and Jesus in, engages this this ominous man without a name, the rich young ruler. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud. Honor your mother and your father. Teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a little boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I find myself drawn to this particular story uh, from the life of Jesus for a number of reasons. Uh, Number one, um, I find it uh, compelling that when this man tells Jesus that he is Uh, done all the commandments he's completed them all he's he's, as it were done done everything Uh, jesus uh, says to him well um, make sure you you know the commandments right don't don't murder don't commit adultery don't steal don't give false testimony don't defraud it's a very interesting commandment jesus is going through the ten commandments here and he adds one don't defraud that's very interesting that jesus has the ability to make very practical for this man something that would have counted for him right that we have the command don't steal Uh, But Jesus here says, don't defraud. Likely because this rich young ruler had made his wealth off of uh, trampling on the poor, off of treating the least of these with disrespect, exorbitant uh, rates on return for the loans that he was lending. And Jesus here makes it very practical for him uh, that his act of discipleship was to treat the poor uh, in in a a just and merciful way way i find myself drawn to this because it reveals to us something of the sense of god's justice of god's mercy in the world and that is that uh, for each of us when we encounter jesus uh, there will be elements of justice and 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 goodness and mercy that we're each called to do uh, in this world and it's going to be very practical for this young man uh, do not defraud would have been very very practical it would have changed his business it would have changed the way he lived in the world it would have changed uh, his schedule so I'm drawn to that. I'm drawn to Jesus's vision for restorative justice of not just passively not doing wrong, but actively beginning to do uh, right. Jesus has a, a call uh, to each of us for the same restorative justice, doing good uh, in the world. But I think what I'm most drawn to uh, is that I see myself in this young man. Um, here's a guy who's done it all right. Uh, he uh, has uh, obeyed God's commands. Uh, He has made it well in the business realm. He has succeeded. Uh, He's young, right? He's got a a future ahead of him. I've always caught myself in my younger years asking other peers how old they were, who were successful people. I always catch myself asking how old people are. And it's, it's not until my recent years that I realized that what I'm really doing is scaling myself compared to where they are, figuring out how I'm doing in comparison to where they are. This guy's young, he's got it all, he's rich. And yet he's forgotten one thing. He has forgotten to do the one thing that Christ had been involving, inviting him to, to sacrifice on behalf of the poor, to be sacrificial, self-sacrificing love. Here's a man who did so much good, but he didn't see the one thing God was inviting him into. And he eventually walks away. Uh, there's a line in this, uh, in this text that um, I think speaks to me, and it's that Jesus looked at him lovingly. Uh, in verse, uh, Here in verse uh, 21, we, we see that as this man is internally wrestling with this call, it says Jesus looked at him and Jesus loved him. Here we have a distracted guy uh, who's done it all right except the one thing that Jesus was inviting him to do. And what does Jesus do? Jesus isn't distracted. He looks at him, he loves him, he sees him, he pays attention to him. I, I don't think it would be a stretch for you to begin to think through um, the, the kind of tyranny of existence that we live in now. Uh, paying attention is uh, almost impossible. Uh, actually attending to the right stuff, right? I mean, we, we have the experience of seeing and, 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 and knowing just about anything we want by virtue of uh, our iPhones in our pockets. We, uh, we can see and know just about anything we wanna see and know. But in that midst of being able to see and know just about everything, maybe you've experienced this too, uh, that it's really easy to lose f- focus on the important things in life and existence and following uh, Jesus. I remember years ago when I was doing my, uh, my doctoral s- studies, when I was doing my PhD stuff o- over in Britain, uh, there was a guy who I was working with who had spent five years of his life, catch this, five years of his life uh, studying two verses, two verses from the Gospel of John. He spent five years studying two verses. And I asked him after he finished his project, I said, what did you learn about the Bible from this project? And he said, well, the Bible. I learned that the, the Bible is the only book in the world that can simultaneously uh, inspire young people to love their parents and give a nerd something to do for five years by studying just a few verses. And his point is that the, the mystery of scripture, right? That, that just by studying two verses, that there's a whole Narnian closet. There's this whole world that can be studied. But can you imagine that, spending five years studying two verses? I mean, our, our modern way of existence makes it almost impossible to focus on just about anything. While you're looking at one thing, just this other thing pops up. While you're following this rabbit trail of information, there's there's this this other stuff over here that just sort of blows you out of the water and you gotta follow that. I remember years ago reading, which is maybe one of the most important articles I've ever read, uh, an article by a guy named Nicholas Carr, uh, who wrote for the Atlantic, an article called, Is Google Making Us Stupid? And he talks about how this sort of distraction culture environment that we live in has radically shifted the way that we read. He says, over the past few years, I've had an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neural circuitry, reprogramming the memory, My mind isn't going so far as I can tell, but it's changing. I'm not thinking the way I used to think. I can feel it almost strong, most strongly when I'm reading. Immersing myself in a book or a lengthy article used to be easy. My mind would get caught up in the narrative of the turns of the argument. And I'd spend hours strolling through long stretches of prose. That's rarely the case anymore. Now my concentration starts to drift after a few pages. I get fidgety, I lose the thread, begin looking for something else to do. I feel as if I'm always dragging my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. And what the net seems to be doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. My mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. This uh, environment of distraction, maybe you felt it too, right? When when you live on Twitter or social media, even the ability to sit down and take in the pages of scripture. um, Do do you find that it's really, really, really hard to pay attention right now? That it's really hard to actually stay on something, to to remain focused on something? Nicholas Carr would point out that that's uh, not only impacting our intellectual life, I would argue it's impacting our spiritual life, our formation. Um, in the young people that I serve in the undergraduate classroom, I find this experience over and over and over again. Uh, that students will find this really interesting question and this uh, some question about the Bible or their faith or uh, some s- social uh, conversation that our culture is having. That they'll they'll find a really important question and they'll they'll latch onto the question and they want an answer to the question. God, why in the Bible is there, is there violence? God, why does God get angry? What, what does the Bible say about uh, you know X, Y, and Z? And when they bring the question to God, they find that God doesn't always give the answer as quickly as they wish. And that sometimes God actually invites us into the silence, that there is no answer. Or at least there's no answer that comes readily available. There's certainly an answer, but sometimes it takes years and years and years to get. We now live in a world where Google can act a lot faster for us than often the voice of God. We can go and find whatever answer we want on YouTube, on that favorite podcast we listen to, and we forget the art of sitting in the presence of God. We forget the art of contemplation. We forget the art of the long question, that struggle that creates us after years and years and years of toil and frustration. I think that's why I'm drawn to this, 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 this story of the rich young ruler. Um, is again, he, he had experienced uh, tremendous fruitfulness, right? He had been obedient to the commandments. He had uh, run a successful business. He uh, was young. He had his whole life ahead of him. But he forgot the most important thing, that thing that Christ was inviting him into, and that moment self-sacrificial love of, of giving away for the sake of the kingdom. And for him in that moment, that was what Christ was inviting him into. It is entirely possible, we learn from this rich young ruler, it is is entirely possible to have it all and yet have nothing. It is entirely possible to have done it all right and yet be missing that thing that Christ is calling us to. You know, I've I've been actually researching quite a bit Uh, This this whole cottage industry, there's a a whole area of of scholarship called attention studies. Uh, It's become kind of a cottage industry in the last decade or so, studying our loss of attention. And when you look at uh, the various kind of of thinkers and scholars in this uh, particular area, they're actually teaching us a lot about attention. Uh, For example, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, attention studies is telling us is that this idea of multitasking, of doing a ton, and being effective is an absolute myth. There is no such thing as multitasking. Your brain, cognitive scientists would tell us, the brain does not have the capacity to give attention to multiple things at once. Now, what we can do is called task switching, right? Which is going between from one thing to another. And what often happens is we task switch from thing to thing to thing to thing, and we essentially uh, give less of ourself to more things. Uh, we don't uh, multitask, we task switch. Multitasking is, largely a myth. Our brains can't handle it. We were created, we were hardwired to give our attention to something. We are not omnipresent. We are not omniscient. We're not able to give our attention to all things. And so this this idea, attention studies is revealing to us that the human brain is, is actually uh, not able to do everything we, we kind of wish it would do. Um, another thing that uh, the Attention Studies is pointing out to us is that our phones, our iPhones, these computers in our pockets, are actually beginning to break down the space-time continuum a little bit. And that is that we now have the capacity to be somewhere else while being in a room. I know this when I'm with my students in the classroom. It's really funny whenever you watch a student text under the table, because uh, you can see in their eyes, they're not really present, but they'll, they'll be able to text, write whole sentences with their hands under the table. Keep your hands above the table means totally different thing to my students now. It it means keep your phone above the table. We can now be anywhere else, but where we are. We can now be anywhere else, but where we are. And you know what this looks like. Go to a restaurant when you can't go to a restaurant. Uh, Go to some social environment, watch people eat together. Are more often than not, are we eating together? No, more often than not, we're utilizing our devices to be somewhere else. Space-time continuum is being broken down. Christ came and reclined at the table. I love that image. He's always reclining at the table. Jesus is always reclining at the table. He's there. He's present. And so that's impacting us, right? Um, Another thing that Attention Studies is pointing out is that there's this massive loss uh, of what Cal Newport calls deep attention. And deep attention is this idea of, of being able to give your attention to something over a long period of time. We have a ton of shallow attention. We give little attention to little things, but deep attention. This is the work of C.S. Lewis writing a book over 10 years. This is the journey of J.R. Tolkien writing uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy over over a few decades. Uh, This is the deep attention of uh, some of the early church mothers and fathers reflecting on the questions of faith over a lifetime's work. But we're losing that. We don't have the capacity anymore to give ourselves to anything over a long period of time, and attention studies is also pointing out it's deeply transforming uh, the economy. Our whole economy is now based on its ability to distract you, clickbait, drawing you away from what you're doing to what they want you to do. Um, no questions asked. One of the, the the ways that this has been exacerbated is uh, the iPhones that we put in our pocket. I mean, there's a, a, a whole, we're learning so much about how this technology is changing uh, our lives. One uh, in uh, four in 10 Americans uh, say they can't live without their cell phones. They couldn't exist without their cell phones. 82% say they never leave home without their phone. Nearly half uh, of Americans sleep with their phone by their side. Uh, one in three people, one in three people check their phones and respond to texts in the middle of the night, meaning they'll go to sleep, wake up, respond to a text, and go back to sleep. We, on average, touch our phones 2,617 times a day. We fondle our phones. We touch it constantly. It has become a part of our life, so much so that you know that feeling when your phone buzzes in your pocket, and then and then you don't have your phone in your pocket, and you still feel something buzzing called phantom rings? That's a reality. Our bodies are now growing addicted uh, to these Incessant, never ending distractions. We are constantly now being, our bodies are getting used to it and almost rewiring around it. And I almost wonder if there's something American about this, right? Like that we've, this has become an American value for us. Uh, even Alexis de, de Tocqueville, who came to America and observed the earliest uh, kind of American culture, he was struck by the fact that Americans, they build their houses and plant their gardens, but once the gardens started growing fruit, by the time the gardens were growing fruit, they'd already sold the house and bought another home. And he talks about this restlessness in Americans. We just love, we love being restless. Not only is this an American thing, I think it's become a Christian thing too. I think we love being distracted. Now, a few years ago, there was, a, again, one of, a, one of the most important articles I've ever read Uh, An article written by a guy named Andrew Sullivan, uh, who writes for The New Yorker. Uh, You know Andrew Sullivan because he's the guy who started blogging. He was, on average, blogging back, you remember blogging, years ago, uh, blogged like 17 articles a day. And he completely burned out and he left the internet. And a few years ago, uh, this this writer all of a sudden comes back. he left the internet, left for a couple years and comes back. And now all of a sudden he comes back and he's talking about God. And what's fascinating about his sort of return to the internet uh, is he starts talking about how distraction had destroyed him. And he said this, I think this is a softball for us. He says, silence in modernity has become over the centuries an anachronism, even a symbol of the useless superstitions we have left behind. The smartphone revolutions of the past decade can be seen in some way simply as the final twist of the ratchet in which those few remaining redoubts of quiet, the tiny cracks of inactivity in our lives are being methodically filled with more stimulus and noise. If the churches, listen to this, if the churches come to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. But even Christian leaders seem to think that they need more distraction to counter the distraction their services have degenerated into emotional spasms. Their spaces drowned with light and noise and locked shut throughout the day when their darkness and silence might actually draw those whose minds and souls have grown web weary. His point is this. He said, Unfortunately, Christians often exacerbate this distraction culture. Our, our gatherings become just these emotional spathom, spasms of light. And he says, If Christians actually could capture this, and be the one people in the world that know how to be quiet. That, that there'd be a whole generation of people that would find their way to the, the community of faith. I think Andrew Sullivan is absolutely on to something. That the church would be a, a, a prophetic place where distraction is named and we learn to be present and we learn to listen to one another and we learn to see one another. What does Jesus do? Jesus looks at this man and he loved him. What a telling, what a, name one other religion where God becomes a human being and looks with love. This, this is absolutely countercultural. <clears throat> I have a friend who is, is writing a book. Uh, it's on suicide. Uh, he's in the process of finishing a book on on, on, uh, on the heartbreaking statistics of suicide in our culture. And he pointed something out to me. He pointed something out about the Golden Gate Bridge. Many of you likely know the Golden Gate Bridge is one of the most common spaces where people uh, venture uh, to take their own life. Uh, Last year, 47 people took their life at the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, On average, one person every other day jumps off the Golden Gate Bridge. My friend uh, who's writing a book pointed something very interesting out. They've discovered that when people jump off the Golden Gate Bridge um, to take their own life, they always jump. Off the side facing the ocean. If you've been to San Francisco, you know part of the ocean, part of the bridge faces the city, and part faces the ocean. And people always jump off the side facing the ocean. And my friend says, part of me wonders if we're doing that. Part of me wonders if that's why the, the space we jump because we're it's like we're making we're we're saying something to the city that you didn't see me. That I was unseen. You, I was there, but you didn't see me. I wrote a book a few years ago with with my friend Ken Weitzma called Redeeming How We Talk. And we tell a story about a man uh, in San Francisco who walked to the Golden Gate Bridge in the 1970s from his apartment to the bridge to take his own life. And he jumped. And later on, uh, investigators found a journal, uh, his last journal entry in his apartment. And it, it simply said this, I'm gonna walk to the bridge. If one person smiles at me on the way, I will not jump. I can't help but wonder if we feel feel so alone, if we feel so lost, if we feel so disconnected and unrooted because we spend our life walking around, looking down at these devices, we don't actually look at each other anymore. And now we have to walk on the other side of the road or or even distancing exacerbates that. But there's power. Jesus looked at the man and loved him. There's power in look. There's joy in look. The incarnation is the God who looks at us. In 1 John, John says this, he says, we beheld him. We saw, we saw him, right? We, we touched him. We felt him. He's, he's, he's almost um, infantile pictures of somebody touching their, their parent. And he says, we looked at him. We beheld him. Isn't it beautiful that the gospels say we could see God? But even more than that, God looks at us. I think... I almost wonder if we could define the incarnation as God puts his phone down and he's with us. This week, as you go about your life, I invite you, ask yourself, uh, what are those impulses, those thrusts in your life that are pulling you away from that thing Christ is calling you to? What are those things that are pulling you to and fro and keeping you from the important things? God's grace and peace. And may you find the God today and the God this week who is looking very lovingly at you.